we're focused in the advertising world, right? We believe that every individual believes a share of the money being produced from their data to advertise to them. We're all walking Nielsen boxes, as I like to say now, right? Used to be there was a thousand families <laughs> that determined where all the advertising went. Now we're all walking Nielsen boxes. We're always being prompted with ads based on Facebook and Google, knowing theoretically more about us than we know about ourselves. So that's the area where we're really focused. Are you an overwhelmed SaaS founder ready to make the leap from leading a team to leading an organization? Join us each week as we refill your think tank with actionable tips and strategies from great business minds you know and those who don't know yet. This is SaaS Fuel with your host, five-time entrepreneur, SaaS founder, and globetrotting adventurer, Jeff Mays. Welcome back to the SaaS Fuel Podcast, where expecting the government or big tech to protect your privacy is like asking a peeping Tom to install your mini blinds. I'm your host, Jeff Maines. Well, privacy and data security is always in the top of the news. A lot of times the stories are maybe a little bit negative, but today we have a conversation with someone who is doing some really big and very unique things in that area using blockchain technology. But before we get to blockchain, last week we talked about another hot topic, and that was supply chain. Well, in last week's episode, we talked with Colton Griffin, CEO of Flourish Software, a leading supply chain management and ERP system for the cannabis, CBD, and hemp verticals. In a highly regulated industry, Flourish Software tracks and optimizes the entire supply chain from seed to sale. It was a fascinating look inside an industry that is full of caricatures, stereotypes, and more than a myth or two. I learned quite a bit about the sophistication, regulation, and heard examples of entrepreneurial adaptation, which I love. And that happens in every single industry, probably yours as well. And best of all, another SaaS founder who used his experience to create a flourishing business. So if you missed it, go back and give that one a listen. My guest this week is Eric Rind, founder and CEO of Imagine BC. Eric is a serial entrepreneur. He creates companies as the main inventor or technologist, and Imagine BC is one of those for sure. Now, if you don't know, BC in this case stands for blockchain. You may have heard of blockchain, or you may know exactly what it is. But Eric will bring us up to speed on how Imagine BC is putting people back in control of their data using blockchain technology. In doing that, he has kickstarted a new data economy that's really aligned with consumer expectations. Very, very cool. And so if having better control of how, where, and why your data is used sounds interesting, then you will love this conversation. So three cheers for privacy and security as we welcome CEO Eric Rind. Hi, Eric. Welcome to SaaS Fuel. Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so you've spent 20 years in uh, the HCM environment. You've done four startups. Tell me a little bit more about that in your background and what brought you to today and Imagine BC. <laughs> it's kind of a long, circuitous journey, I guess. I actually amazingly studied history at George Washington University. And as wow. you, you can imagine, <laughs> what do you do with a history degree if you're not going to law school? 
(laughs) (laughs) It turns out, though, that as part of my degree, I had to take some statistics courses. One of those statistics courses was a computer course. I had to learn Fortran Okay. as part of that statistics. That got me into computers, and this would have been 1980s. So, you know, nobody even knew what a computer was back then. So I took Fortran. I realized, hey, this is something you could actually probably make money at and, and have a career. So I started to take every possible computer course I could at GW. When I graduated, after a short stint at the Urban Institute, enough to get a job working for Price Waterhouse in their consulting division here in Washington, D.C. The group I was working with happened to be working on payroll and HR-related work. And that kind of set the course for my career for the next 28 years. Eventually, I left Pricewaterhouse to become an entrepreneur in the HCM space. And then for about three years ago, still as part of HCM, I got interested in blockchain technology. I'm always looking at new technologies. Got interested in it after reading this book here, Blockchain Revolution. I really was a believer in it. I thought it had game-changing properties for the world. I said, hey, let's use it. Let's put it into the HR product. And we started down that path. And pretty soon realized it made no sense for our HR product, but what we were doing was pretty cool. And we pivoted in and said, hey, look, let's start another company. And that's where Imagine BC came out of, which was, you know, you got personal data. People should secure it, control it. And if you really wanted to get them interested, maybe they should monetize it. And that's what Imagine BC is about. But there you go. So from Fortran to blockchain. I mean, that, that is quite <laughs> <Yeah>. a span. <laughs> it's a fairly interesting so, thing. And I'm not sure if other people are like this, but programming languages are almost like human languages in that over the course of my life, I've programmed in many different languages, but I think in Fortran. Oh, that's great. And uh, probably people who speak multiple languages, they do the translation in their head. So even when I was programming in my head in Fortran, I, you know, it's the first language I learned. That's amazing. So how has blockchain changed IT overall? Well, I think it's interesting technology. And, but there was a period of time there where, you know, it was a nail and everybody thought they had a hammer or reverse it, right? <laughs> they had a hammer and everybody hit that nail. Is blockchain technology right for every company? Not early. <laughs> In my case, when it was the HCM part, you know, when our HCM company, it kind of made sense because an HCM system, we sit on all this personal data of somebody, bank accounts, social security number, address, HIPAA compliant information. So that becomes a single point of failure for our business. So blockchain seemed like a way for us to beat that, right? If we distributed the data back to the people, we would be removing that single point of failure from our business. Does that distributed nature of security warrant me taking on the overhead of that additional layer of security? Because it's not insignificant. When you distributed that data out, now this person has another key. They have to remember where their password is, passphrase is, if they lose their key. So you better really be sure that the technology is right for your business because there is a burden that comes with implementing it. Uh, That makes a lot of sense. So how is blockchain being used in HR tech? How do you see that uh, transforming HR? Well, amazingly, if you look at what's going on in the HCM space, and there's a lot going on, you never even hear blockchain being mentioned. <laughs> right, right. And that's and considering what I just said, you'd wonder, right? 
Look, I mean, the Ultimate Group, or, you know, UKG, which used to be Ultimate and Kronos, they just were ransomware, right? There's hacking going on all through that industry, but nobody's really sure. putting it in. And I can bet you it's primarily because of what I just said. There's a tremendous burden that comes with it in that, you know, if I'm ADP and I've got and I'm paying one out of every nine people in the country, I now have a maintenance nightmare when those people keep losing their passphrase and forget their security key <laughs> and now can't get yeah. to their data. <laughs> it's just not worth it for what? Producing a W-2? <laughs> it just, right. So although it makes complete sense from removing that point of failure, there's right now a burden that comes with that the, H, the HDM companies probably just feel it's not worth making right now. That makes sense. There's certainly a, a lot of talk about privacy online, and you know we, we've seen there should multiple. Be. Yeah, we've seen a lot of ransomware attacks, those kinds of things. So, how do you make it possible for somebody to take control of their own data? Well, if, if you think about it, we're focused in the advertising world, right? We believe that every individual believes a share of the money being produced from their data to advertise to them. We're all walking Nielsen boxes, as I like to say now, right? Used to be there was a thousand families that determined where all the advertising went. Now we're all walking Nielsen boxes. We're always being prompted with ads based on Facebook or Google, knowing theoretically more about us than we know about ourselves. So that's the area where we're really focused. So where blockchain comes in is that first, we promise our user that they're in control of their data. So if we had that in a centralized database where I and my staff could get, get at it, and therefore black hats hackers could get at it, we wouldn't be delivering on that promise. So the only technology out there right now that allows us to deliver on that promise is blockchain. We distribute, when you choose to add personal data about yourself, it really goes into a wallet about yourself that you have the key to. So when we find opportunities for brands who want to advertise to you, you get to decide whether you want to share your data with them or not, and therefore have the opportunity potentially to monetize your data. So you're always in control. You're always making the decisions. And most importantly, since we don't have your data, we can't send you texts or emails. We can't be in your life. You have to make the decision first to come to our app to look inside the app, to see what opportunities are there, and then make the decisions, hey, I want to make money from those opportunities. And, and it's really blockchain so, is the enabler of that. Yeah. So that's what you're talking about with the, the new data economy. You know, we essentially are the IP. Then, and so instead of Google selling us or Facebook selling us to advertisers, we have more control over that. Or we can actually yes. get paid. Is that, am I Correct. hearing that right? Not only you can, and, and in my opinion, you should. And even more importantly, I think it's going to become absolutely necessary in a world where, you know, another set of technology, which Magic BC isn't necessarily involved with, but you can't stop is robotics and AI machine learning, right? So sure. I always like to say you can look at the world either through Star Wars or Star Trek lenses. And if you're a Star Trek person, you're going to say, oh, you know, new jobs are going to be created by those technologies. Yeah, no, no, everything is going to be hunky-dory. If you're a Star Wars right. person like me, you're going to say millions of people are going to be displaced by robots. So we're going to have to find new ways to get them money or you're going to have a lot of unhappy people, right? So 
one pot of money that is just sitting there waiting to be shared is the money being made from our data. Think of the trillions of dollars that Google and Facebook make from advertising, and that's all on our data. If we stared that out, it's a new pot of money for everybody. That's what Imagine BC is about, redistributing the wealth away from the tech, big tech companies and primarily back to the people. Yes, we take a fee for helping make the market, but it's, a, it's, it's 10%. 90% of the money goes back into the community, back to the people. That's pretty amazing. That seems like something that would just be, uh, you know, why would everybody not do that? What what kind of adoption are you seeing? Well, it's a good question. And in fact, it's the privacy paradox. Yes, privacy is being discussed. Yes, people, when surveyed say, oh, they're they're horrified about how their data is being used and how evilly it's being used. And then when they're asked, so have you dropped your Facebook account? They said, no. (laughs) (laughs) it's called the privacy paradox so interestingly enough we've had trouble getting adoption here in the united states the good news for us is is that we're really now no longer interested in really launching the product here in the united states we're actually going to launch it in africa and the difference is is that in the united states good and bad is a very wealthy nation even our poor are richer than most of the people in the world. Sure. Hard to understand is an American, but when you look beyond our borders, you know, so when you say to somebody, hey, you can make 25 cents from watching an ad in America, it's like, boring. <laughs> what do I need 25 cents for, right? <laughs> but you tell somebody, you, you know, like in South Africa that you can make 25 cents from watching an ad, they're all over it. And more importantly, when you tie it to something of value that they want, then they're really over it. And in the case of South Africa, we're not only helping them monetize the personal data, but immediately a piece of their earnings goes to the purchase of more airtime on their phone. So in South Africa, unlike here in the United States, where, you know they don't have monthly contracts. They pay for their time by the minute. And when they run out of cash, they're done. They can't use their phone until they have some more cash. So when you tell somebody, hey, you can earn more airtime on your phone simply by watching a couple of ads a day, you get their interest in a hurry. You wouldn't see that in the United States. So luckily, through partnerships, we're going to launch over there and prove the concept out across the ocean. doesn't mean we don't need it here in the United States. We're just too wealthy to get it yet. And that, that's really interesting, just thinking about the, the different use cases. And uh, how has it been going into to different markets, international markets, and how is that different, if at all, than like the U.S. market? Well, as I just said, the international market is far more receptive of this concept than the U.S. market. And, and advertisers are. They get it in a heartbeat, right? And they get it because they know the eyeballs are going to be there. So advertisers, and this is what we should all realize, right? Advertisers are always going to go where they think they have the best buck, you know, bang for their buck to sell their product. So if if you're old like me and you remember a time before Google and Facebook, advertising used to be on television, radios, and billboards. That was the best bang for the buck, right? Then along came this company called Facebook who realized that they were giving their service away for nothing and had to make public and now had to make some money. And they realized their only monetization concept was advertising. And now 
you had a whole new method of advertising that for a long time looked way better than billboards, TV, or radio. So they started to get a, a larger and larger share of the market. Well, if you offer an advertiser a better model, they'll always go. So in the case of Africa, where they know the eyeballs are going to be there because of our distribution strategy, our partners over there, they know we're going to have you know half a million, a million, a million and a half. We're going to have a growing community month after month. They've got no problems putting part of their budget onto a platform like this because it's better. You're, it's more. It's ethically better, right? You're now actually helping the very person you're trying to get by your product. So really, acceptance by the brands overseas is, is greater than the acceptance by the brands here in this country. Now, we spoke with a, a lot of large brands here in the country, and they like the concept. But they always say, you know, talk to us when you have 2 million people. So that's the catch-22. Well, the good sure. news is because of our distribution strategy in South Africa, the brands know we're going to have millions of people. So they're signing, they sign up without any issue. That's uh, a really good way of doing it. You have to, to build the, the eyeballs before the, the sponsors come on board and it's building those two sides at the same time. Yeah, it's, it's a struggle. Look, it's very hard to do. And it's extremely hard to do now in a world where our attention is being grabbed all over the place right now. Even Facebook is, they're not growing anymore, right? Is everybody's on TikTok now. Our attention span seems to get smaller and smaller. <laughs> <laughs> it's about the length of a reel, right? Just keep scrolling, keep scrolling. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So how did you come up with this idea of being able to, to monetize our own data in, in a way that so we get paid and not just the big companies? Yeah, it was a confluence of probably three things. As I said, one, I was already enamored with blockchain technology. So I was kind of exploring it related to my HCM company. The other thing going on was I've been disgusted with the direction the world is heading in for a long time. And sadly, my wife takes the brunt of that. <laughs> she hears all my bitching, <laughs> right? She's my outlet of everything that's driving me nuts. So I, I had this dissatisfaction of, where the, of the trajectory of the world. I see a technology that could potentially change it. And then probably the true catalyst was the birth of my first grandchild. Because now, yeah, I might be pissed off, but I'm on the back third of my life. This young guy, he's just starting his, and he's going to inherit this world. <laughs> so I finally said to myself, look, I could just sit here and keep bitching, or I could literally do something about it. And it was at that time that we said, look, the HCM part didn't make sense, so let's really do something about it. Let's pivot. And if we're going to pivot, and we're going to tell people they need to take back control of their data, you've got to give them a reason to do that. And for us, the reason to do that is make money from it. Make your fair share of it. And it's not just in advertising. There are other companies in this space working on other ways for you to monetize your data. One of my favorite examples that I like to give, which really is not an advertising play, but gives you the sense of the value of your personal data. About two years ago, I guess, the company 23andMe. I mean, most people know 23andMe, the DNA company, right? The Ancestry sure. company. Right. So they sold their customer basis personal data. So they took all their the personal data they collected about your DNA and sold it to GlaxoSmithKline on a non-exclusive basis. And that transaction was $400 million. So that got me interested. So I found out how many users 
that 23 me had, how many people, you know, clients they had. And when I did the math, that turned out to be $1,000 per client. Now, think about that. Even if you wanted to sell your DNA data, which I don't get, but if you want to, wouldn't, you know, that $1,000 or some part of that in our model, if Imagine BC had done that transaction, you would have gotten $700 of that transaction. That's significant, (laughs) right? For many people, even in this country, that's significant. So what is the value of our personal data? Way, way, way more than big tech wants you to believe. That's a great example. I think we're, we're definitely missing out. We can, be, we can say that we're horrified about uh, the sharing of our data, but we don't do anything about it. And this, uh, the platform actually gives us something to do. Yeah, like anything, right? It needs to become easy and it needs, to, and it needs a, a good distribution methodology. And for us, what we've learned in South Africa that you can't do this grassroots. You know, if you explain it to one person, they get it, but you can't explain it to 50 million people at one time. So you need a partner who's going, who already has a large community and they get it and they're willing then, and they're willing to become, in our case, it's one, it's the largest retailer in South Africa and they actually sell all the smartphones, right? They sell smartphones. So they're literally putting our app on the SIM card of every smartphone. So people are going to have this one way or the other. So since you have it, why not use it, right? Make some money. If you have that kind of distribution strategy, you're going to get acceptance. Now, there are equivalent types of distribution states, but they're not worth going after until we have the proof of concept working over there. But they are. They exist here in the United States. And over there, it makes sense because you know, the the mobile carrier is getting paid from the the user. So they're actually it's beneficial to them in two ways. You know, one in the data, but then that those dollars well, right. that they're they're collecting just go right back into airtime. Exactly. Yeah. So from the retailer signed up for this in a second because they said, "Look, yeah, we benefit two ways. First, we're now making more commissions from the telecoms." on airtime purchases that people couldn't make before. They ran out of money. Now right. they're going to essentially have more money by turning their their time in by watching ads into it. And the second thing, it's a differentiator. They only held on to a customer for 10 months before that customer went and looked for a better deal. Who's going to have the best deal in town now? Well, if I could be earning airtime for essentially just a couple of minutes a day, our partner has the best deal in town. So they saw the value, but also they get it. They see the value to their customer as well. Customer will actually have, even after they purchase the airtime they want, they'll still have additional cash left over that they can, you know, in our model, they can spend that cash one of three ways on content inside our platform, donate it to a chain or spend it in the physical world. And, And the concept of spending in the physical world in this model is they're actually going to be able to put it into a money market account. And now you're going to have people who are, don't even have bank accounts are now going to have money market accounts and be part of the capitalist world as investors. That's pretty exciting, really. That is. So what type of content is available inside the platform? For us, we have about 30 content partners right now, but really it's another lesson I learned as I was do, rolling this up. Somebody like yourself, Jeff, could be a content partner of us. Anybody who has a show or we like to say we focus on content that's educational, inspirational, or information. Interested in videos of cats winding yarn or TikTok people dancing. You know, that's, <laughs> that's fine. There's, there are other platforms for that. 
Our platform is about education, information, and inspiration. So if you have content like that, we're a way for the content provider to monetize it. That being said, we had about 35, and we hope it's those people would help bring their communities onto our platform. And they all sounded great. But what I found was if you don't pay these people, they pretty much don't do anything. Because <laughs> so, it's just we're just extra work for them. So another thing that the South African opportunity allows us to do is it becomes very profitable for us. We start making money. And I plan to change our content strategy to be, we'll still support that tier. If you've got that type of content, you don't want us in your lives telling anything, you know, we'll we'll vet you in. If we like what you got, you can come on. But more importantly, we're going to, you know, pick people, pay them to produce content. They can still make the two revenue streams from us. And or thirdly, we'll just flat out produce shows that we'll own. But you have to be willing to actually pay for content if you want to get people to put content on your platform. But, you know, it's anything from there. We have a lot of cannabis people who are trying to educate the population about the benefits, especially the medicinal benefits of cannabis. We've got air people in the sports world. We're all over. I'm really interested in news and I hope to be able to launch a news service. When we come back in the States, if we succeed at this, then I hope to be able to launch an independent news service. Nice. Because news in this country is gone. There's no such thing as journalism anymore. (laughs) It's just who can yell their opinion the loudest. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of opinion and a lot less news than there used to be for sure. Correct. And that's also, you know, I go back to my grandson. He's inheriting, right? And and actually, since I started the project, I now have two other grandchildren. I have two more grandsons. So I have three grandsons now. And the world they're inheriting You know, if we don't fix this journalism problem, the American way of life is really in in trouble. An independent press holding our decision makers accountable is a foundation of our way of life. And that's why they're called, you know, it's called the fourth estate. There's the three branches of government, but the press was the fourth estate because they held the three branches accountable. Now they're just the mouthpieces of whoever's paying them. And it's bad. Follow the money. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And it, it's an interesting time because out of what's going on right now, especially with the big tech companies, look a lot like the Gilded Age, right? The Rockefellers, the Vanderbilts, they actually have, and our guys have more money than those guys have and way more power because they're controlling data. Same thing. There, you know, there was a great change in the press at the exact same time. It was the golden age of progressive journalism. And <laughs> we need that part too. It's salsa. So you've been a founder four times over. And so what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned along the way in building four companies? It's really hard to raise capital. It, <laughs> it might look easy. It might look, <laughs> I mean, TV makes it look like it's so simple, right? Right, <laughs> I mean, right. Go to a dinner and somebody writes you a check for, for <laughs> it doesn't work that way. It's really, really hard to raise capital. So be aware, be aware of that. The next thing is when you found a company, and this I thought when I was a young guy, right? You think you're going to be in charge and you think you're going to have, you know, be able to do what you want to do finally and be independent. And you're not. You never are, right? You've got two major constituencies when you own your own business. One's called your customer slash client, depending on what business you're in. And the other's called your employees. 
And what really fascinated me for a long time was that when I was at Price Waterhouse, they had a very entrepreneurial structure. They really they wanted to know who was going to make partners. So they were looking at the masses of consultants they had, who was thinking like a you know business creation, billable hours. So they really had a very entrepreneurial type of structure, which was very cool. So you had all of the the benefits of an entrepreneurial structure without any of the fears. You always knew you were going to get your check, right? You had benefits, right? So it was a very big company with an entrepreneurial spirit. When I actually became an entrepreneur, it's not so much fun when you don't know where your next check's going to be. And more importantly, the amount of time you spend on employee issues is mind-boggling to me. So you think you're going to be free to think and to create and in fact, I, it took me. In fact, the guy who recruited me away from Price Waterhouse, who's, who was my partner in my our first endeavor, he kept asking me, "So you happy you left Price Waterhouse?" And I kept telling him, "No, <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> I had more fun over there. I was thinking do over there. Here, I got to deal with a bunch of stuff that I really, I know is important. Don't get me wrong. Employees are the lifeblood of every company, and, and I believe in taking care of them and sharing with them, but it's most entrepreneurs aren't ready for that. They're, I just don't believe they're ready. Start to grow. And you, you know, and we, you know, over those 28 years, you know, four companies, we average anywhere from, you know, 10 to our height. We were like 80 employees. And I'll tell you, when you got 80 employees, it never stops. <laughs> There's one <laughs> issue after another. So those are, you know, yeah. yeah, yeah, you're in charge of your own business, but it's hard to raise capital and don't underestimate you know, the amount of time you need to spend on employee matters, because they are, they, you know, if your employees aren't happy, you're not going to succeed. Right, right. That old phrase of, you know, business is easy if it wasn't for customers and employees. And I guess you add a third category of it. In <laughs> yes, right. Yeah, sometimes. <laughs> right. So what are your bootstrap today? And, 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 and I love that. Know, I love company. We, yeah, and if that's true, the investment when you do raise money, and I have a I have a handful of investors, and we've now been together for like 15 years, and lives change, right? So what is everything was happy, happy, happy 15 years ago, it's not so happy, happy, happy 15 years later. So now you where you're all pulling in the same direction to start, now you're pulling in different directions, and you got to deal with it. Sure, it's a lot. It really takes a special person to deal with those issues. It, TV makes it look so simple. It's not. <laughs> it does. Everything's wrapped up neatly in, in 45 minutes, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Or in eight episodes. Right, right. <laughs> in eight episodes. <laughs> yeah, you wake up one day with nothing, and uh, eight episodes later, you've built a million-dollar business in 90 days. How hard could it be, right? Right. And you sold it for $400 million or whatever. Right. right. <laughs> Everything's the billions these days. Yeah, it's not, it's not that simple. Right, right. So, what would be some maybe some mistakes? Yeah, or, so those those you know, are big, you know those are the lessons of starting companies. Yes, yeah, oh, that's great. Uh, any mistakes along the way that uh, that you want to share? We all make mistakes. My biggest mistake, which I I hate thinking about anymore, but <laughs> so, <laughs> I have those two. There was a period of time. So our our largest client was a contract we had with the United States government. We, we actually paid the public health service, you know, the Surgeon General of the United States. We paid the Surgeon General of the United States. So we got a, a letter from them saying that we made the decision that we're going to move off your system, but it's going to take two years. 
because <laughs> this is the government, wow. <laughs> right? So, so that was a big deal because that was a huge chunk of our revenue. So we said, if we're going to make this, we're going to look, need to find a buyer. We're going to make it on our own with this contract going away. So, we, and it looked like it was emerged with them with the idea that eventually it would be an acquisition on our part. And that was a mistake. It turned into an absolute nightmare. A nightmare that unfortunately ended up in the courts. And that's someplace nobody ever wants to be. Right. You do not want to be in court. <laughs> because all you do is go to bed at night saying, the only ones getting rich here are the lawyers. That's exactly and right. So that in yeah. So that was a huge mistake. And the mistake was that not vetting the partner enough. Right? It looked good, they sounded good. If we had vetted deeper and spent more time, we probably would have seen that their track record was not good, and we probably would have ended up where we we ended you know ended up with them in court. So that was a huge mistake, and it, it's one that cost in. I had a lot more hair at the time, and you know it cost both sides you know almost a million dollars to beat each other up in court. It was just unnecessary, unwarranted. But the mistake was and. You know, there's a sense of desperation. You see that, you know, a contract's going away. Here's an opportunity. It looked good. You grabbed it rather than really spending the time to see if it was the right opportunity. And to be honest, they could probably say the same thing about us. They didn't do enough due diligence on us, blah, blah, blah. So, and that's why it was such a bad battle. Both sides thought they were morally correct. Sure. So over the lessons learned, what role have mentors played in your success? Well, that's, that's an interesting point. It gets back to entrepreneurship. When I was at Price Warehouse, I had great mentors. And when I left Price Warehouse, the guy who recruited me away theoretically should have been, but there were two things. One, he was more mature than he was. <laughs> and I was more professional than he was. <laughs> so, And secondly, he was in New York and I was in DC. So we didn't get to spend a lot of time together. And when you're running the company, you're not going to have a mentor inside your company. Sure. You have to out outside your company. But my mentors were all, you know, in Price Waterhouse and I probably should have kept them alive. That was probably another mistake thinking about it now. And I didn't. So I really was out there on my own learning without help, especially when I was younger. Yeah. So important to have that, uh, that ongoing mentorship. And, and interestingly enough, it turns out that started Imagine BC I went back to Price Warehouse, and the guy I worked for back then, I actually, he's on my board of cause. He was the best mentor I ever had. That's fantastic. I love how that came full circle. Yeah. So for startups, how do you know when it's time to start something new? That's actually, I guess, pretty easy to answer. And that is when it stops being fun. To be honest, I probably went at least five years, maybe 10 years too long in the HCM business. It really wasn't fun anymore. In the early days, we had designed something so dramatically different that it was fun to go out to the marketplace and show people how it could be done. But, you know, 10 years in, you realize, you know, we knew where we were going to be. We were never going to be ADP. We were always going to be a niche business. So it started to be the same every day. And it stopped being fun for me because I stopped learning. For me personally, if I come to work and I'm learning something, I'm happy, it's fun. And if I'm happy, it's going to be fun. It stopped being that. It was just the same thing every day. It was breath, breath of fresh air, let's say, because 
it, it's very different from what you know the HCM world, and more important, so broad, it's almost impossible not to learn something every day because it touches on every aspect you know, of what we're doing. You know, dealing with people, the monetization of personal data, where's your personal data coming from, the ads that are coming in, the different brands you're dealing with. It's just such a broad thing that there's something to learn every day. And then and that's without even talking about the content side. And when you get on the content side, that's it's just fascinating. So yeah. for me, in fact, I said to my wife, I haven't been this happy since I left Price Waterhouse. <laughs> 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 because every day I'm learning something. It's so you know, the, the answer to the question is. You got to stop when it stops being fun. And then you have the fun was when you stop learning something. So is that one of the big things that drew you into blockchain was just how deep it is and, and you, there's so much to learn. And then I guess content as well. Absolutely. Because of my inquisitive name was different. New. It wasn't just a new programming language. It wasn't updated. All technology, you know, there was structured programming. Those were just variations of the same thing. Blockchain was something completely different. So it got me very, very interested on the technology side, even on the HCM side. And then, yeah, when we made the decision that we wanted to have a content channel, well, that never stops you from thinking because you have to find where's your niche, what type of content. You have to deal with the content creators. You have to find ways to make them happy. So, yeah, it's that's it's fascinating. Just absolutely fascinating. So what do you think that the future of content online and specifically the future of blockchain is? over the, the next few years? Well, I think and I hope the future of blockchain, is, I believe it needs to be part of our lives. I mean, it's going to require government cooperation. You, you know, there's still governments, unfortunately. <laughs> so we still have a government. <laughs> and But the government, you know, again, let's go back to my grandson. There's no reason my grandson should have been given a social security card that has a social security number on it. It's already been hacked. There's probably already some people opening up bank accounts with his social security <laughs> number. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sad but true. I mean, that's the. I mean, it's true, and it's also it's cynical, true. But if you know, if every human being born is given a blockchain wallet, and his social security number is on that wallet, and that wallet is the his parents are the custodian of it until he's eighteen, and then he takes over control of it. Now you can start to see that our identity remains secure, right? It can't be hacked. It's really, I mean, right now you can't hack a blockchain. You can hack the exchanges, crypto is being stolen, but you're not hacking a blockchain. There's not been a successful 51% attack that I know of, right? So, and people go, oh, but quantum community will be able to do that. But that's naive because you're saying then blockchain technology won't keep up with quantum computing. Right, right. That's a ridiculous argument. So- yeah, I mean, just of course it will. The the keys will get larger. You know, it'll always stay ahead. That the, the cryptographic nature of it'll stay ahead. So if government would buy in and everything that says who we are remains in our control, that's a world where you could start to see starts to get far more interesting. <laughs> so and the sun starts to shine. So that's really what I hope will be the the, the future of blockchain. When I started Imagine BC, obviously I'm just hoping that we can give a, a you know a nudge. In that direction, right? If we can get people saying, "Oh, it's pretty cool that I control my data and I can make some," money, then other people start to think, "Well, what else we could do about people owning their own data?" So, you know, that's really what I hope will be the future of blockchain technology. Our our identities should be in our control, and if government, you know, would understand that, 
they should act on it and make it that way. Hospital records, everything. You know, you go to a ball game and you have to show the proof of your age. So you take out your driver's license and you show them your driver's license. Well, what else is on your driver's license? Your address is on your driver's license. You've just given a address. It's insane. I've had people tell me, Eric, there's no way we're ever putting our banking information into your app. And I go, have you ever written a check? <laughs> it's right and there they on say, the front. Yes. I said, you give your banking information away all the time. It's more secure in our app than it is in your checkbook. <laughs> they don't get it. They, you know, It's an educational yeah. movement to get people to truly understand what security and control of one's personal data is. They don't realize how vulnerable they are. But if government got involved, it, it's a dope. I hope government will wake up and understand the same, the values that I see and many other people see, right? There's a whole cadre of us, you know, shouting at government, you know, this is important. You really need to be hearing it. So what would an ideal world look like uh, from a technology perspective and, and you know, with personal data by the time your grandsons are, are your age? Yeah, I mean, I actually kind of know that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's go back to what I just said. If you have something like Imagine BC, which becomes the user interface of commerce, it's an exchange of right now digital content. But imagine if it could be an exchange of physical content too. Now, you have all those robots over there and you've got automated vehicles and they're coming. Now, if you merge the two, now you get a pretty interesting world. I like a world where a woman in Central Africa could design a dress and through a user interface like ours, market that dress. And a woman in Des Moines, Iowa can buy that dress with virtually no intermediaries between the two. There'll be a small price to pay for the 3D printing of the dress, a small price to pay for the distribution of the dress, right? It'll, it'll be 3D printed up. It'll be delivered by an autonomous vehicle. And this woman in Iowa will get this dress from this woman in Africa. But the woman in Africa makes the majority of the money. Today, they don't. They make nothing. If they can even sell a good, that's the world I like. Right. I like that world where we're all entrepreneurs. Every one of us who has an idea can get that idea to market without these bizarre third parties standing in our way because they serve their purpose from, I'd say, from 1,200 to 2,000. And right now, they're the evilest organizations on the planet. They are destroying our way of life. they got to go. So that's the world I want, where we can get back to being a community, but it's a community of 25,000 know, circumference miles, not two miles, but it still works. That's a great model. Well, Eric, where can we find out more about you and Imagine BC online? Just go to www.imaginebc.net. Check us out. And more importantly, you know, sign up, download the app, sign up and start playing around with it. As I said, our interests right now lie across the ocean in South Africa and actually on the African <laughs> continent. But hopefully we'll be back here in the United States pretty soon. That's great. Really enjoyed our conversation. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Jeff. Well, thanks again to Eric Ryan for coming on the show and sharing your insights and resources. Learn more about Eric and Imagine BC at imaginebc.net. That .net is pretty important. BC, of course, for blockchain. Imagine what? Blockchain. Imaginebc.net. 
As always, all links, highlights, resources, and full show notes are available at sasfuel.com. So please subscribe and follow us at sasfuel.com. It's all free. And every time someone subscribes to SAS Fuel, a brilliant meteor streaks across the sky. It's true. Test it out. Subscribe. Get your friends to subscribe. Go outside and look up at night this week. Every meteor you see, a new subscriber to SAS Fuel. Okay, it might actually be the Orionid meteor shower, but I'm sticking with a subscriber story. So subscribe, get your friends to subscribe, and then go out there and take a look at those meteors as well. Everyone, new subscriber. Well, join us next week for our conversation with Greg Vetter, founder and CEO of Tessie Mays, a flavor-forward, organic, fresh food company considered to be a lead innovator and disruptor in the clean food movement. Another fascinating founder. And you might be wondering what organic food and clean eating has to do with SaaS. Well, tune in next week to find out. Wow, you know, thinking about that makes me hungry. I'm going to go make a salad. So until we meet again, enjoy the journey.